Well, please turn with me in our Bibles uh, this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and if you're using the church Bibles, you'll find this on page 976. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, this morning uh, we want to uh, begin a new series. Uh, we had been looking at the Gospel of Mark for uh, an extended period, and we had finished up Mark last Sunday. And we thought it might be a good idea to do a short series uh, understanding some of the distinctives of um, the Reformed faith or uh, to look at that more broadly of understanding what does it mean when we talk about God's grace? What does it mean to be saved by grace? And uh, this has been described by different uh, designations. Sometimes we hear of the language of Calvinism, uh, the five points of Calvinism. Maybe we've heard of uh, the, the acronym TULIP. Uh, maybe we've heard of the doctrines of grace. And really, we want to be thinking about that idea of what is grace. Grace uh, has been defined or described as unmerited favor. But we can go further than that. Grace really is demerited favor. Grace is receiving kindness and goodness and favor from God when we deserve the opposite. And that is something that the scriptures highlight for us. Uh, that's what we were reading here in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast. 
And so this morning we want to begin uh, this exploration on what does it look like that God saves people by grace? And we want to look at Ephesians 2 this morning. And we want to see that because God's grace uh, is directed towards us when we're dead in our sins, we are to give him all glory for his gracious purposes. Paul's letter uh, to the Ephesians is an extremely rich letter. Uh, it's not a very long letter, but it is really packed uh, with great truths but on top of that it's actually woven together uh, wonderfully as well and even in the opening of this chapter uh, in chapter one Paul explains to the Ephesians his prayer for them uh, there at the end of chapter one he tells them that he's praying that they would have their eyes the eyes of their hearts enlightened in verse 18 that they would be given a spirit of wisdom that they would know the hope to which they have been called and what are the riches of their glorious inheritance. And so as Paul is sharing with this church in Ephesus, his prayer for them, he's praying for them that they would have an understanding, that they would have the wisdom to understand God's truth, but also that they would come to appreciate the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards them in Christ Jesus. And really, as we're doing this short series, that is uh, our prayer, is, is that we would grow in our appreciation of God's wisdom, but also that we would appreciate God's power, uh, that the power and the wisdom of God in salvation should lead us to adore God more and more. And, and uh, that is what ultimately Paul begins to unpack in this letter. But as we come to look at it, we want to see the wisdom and power of God in the work of saving sinners. And so we are looking at chapter 2, and we want to look at the need for God's grace, the description of God's grace, and then finally the outcome of God's grace. But notice in chapter 2 at verse 1 how Paul talks. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. When we hear of that language, it is startling, it is uh, gripping. But Paul here is obviously not talking about physically dead. Uh, he's talking about they were dead in the way that they lived. Uh, you were dead in the trespasses in which you once walked. He's talking about their way of life. And he's talking not about a physical death, but about a death of the soul. That there is a spiritual condition that he describes as equivalent to being dead. What do you think of when you hear the word dead or death or died? You think of something that is unresponsive. You think of something that has no ability. You think of something that is cut off from life. And here, Paul is using that language to capture something of the condition of the souls of individuals, that they were cut off from the source of life, that they were unresponsive to God, that they were separated from God as well. That's a radically different view of human nature that we commonly hear of in our culture today. There's really only three ways that we can think about human nature. The first way is to think about human beings as essentially good and upright. We are good people. We are innocent. And the bad that we see around us is simply external. It's situational. It's because of the circumstances. 
The weakness of that position is, is that the prevalency of sin undermines that conviction. When you see that no one goes around saying that they are without sin or that they've never done wrong, when people use the argument, who are you to judge? Do you not have things in your own life that you regret, that you look back on? It highlights to us something of the universality of our problem. Corruption is not just external. There's something universal or prevalent in our world where all people recognize that we do things that are deformed, that are inherently wrong, that are selfish. And so there's, there's an attack on that mindset of thinking, well, we're all good people. It doesn't explain the world we live in. If we're all good, then why is evil so prevalent? A second position, a more mediating position, is to say, well, there's a mixture of us. Uh, we are both good and bad. Uh, we are sick. Uh, we are prone to evil, but we can ascend. We can overcome that temptation to doing wrong. We can do the good. We just need to strive together to overcome that, that evil, uh, that, that propensity towards giving in to sinful desires. And so there, there can be this kind of blended answer. We're both good and evil. But Paul doesn't even... Uh, isn't satisfied with that because he doesn't just say well we're sick we're vulnerable we're weak Paul goes even more radical and says dead there's no life there is no communion with God there is no response to God to God instead our condition is even more uh, serious than that so when Paul uses this language, he is talking about an inability to respond, uh, a lifelessness uh, that characterizes all people. The scriptures uh, spell this out for us, that when our first parents sinned, when Adam sinned in the garden, that what he did didn't just uh, have consequences for Adam, but it had a consequence for his posterity, that all people who have descended from Adam have a corrupt nature as a result. So Paul would say in Romans chapter 5 that death entered this world through one man's trespass. And through that one man's trespass, death reigned over all. The reason why we see sin prevalent around us is because we all share a common corrupt nature. The reason why we sin is because we have a sinful nature that is now separated from God. Just as Adam was removed from the garden and barred entry by the cherubim, so we are people who by nature are now separated from God and needing to be restored uh, to him. We read there in Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, uh, Ezekiel chapter 37, it says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I said, O sovereign Lord, you know alone. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. What was Ezekiel being faced with in that vision? It was a vision of the people of Israel and their spiritual condition. They were lifeless. 
they were hopeless. They had no hope in God. And the question was, is can these bones live? Can this change happen where those who were living without hope would come to have a living hope? Those who were cut off from God would come to be made alive by God's power. And ultimately, through the prophecy and the working of the Spirit, the breath of God, those bones came to life. The lesson was is that God is in the business of making those who were dead alive. That God is powerful enough to do it. And in his wisdom, he has found a way to do it. And so here, Paul is using that language, the language of Scripture, to describe our human condition. We are dead in our sins. That's how serious our default condition is. Not weak, but dead. And then he spells that out really in verses 2 and 3. Paul goes on to elaborate on our condition uh, and what that means of being cut off from God and of life. He says in verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of, of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What does it mean to be dead in our sins? Paul says you can think about that in in reference to the world, the flesh, and your passions. With reference to the world, we are those who walk according to the course of this world. That's what it means to be dead in your sins. That you're now actually living without reference to God. That's what characterizes worldliness. When we simply live without reference to God, we are committed to an ideal, to a way of life that denies the supremacy of God in all things. We just don't go there. We live as though God were not. That is the definition of worldliness. And Paul says that's the course of living according to this world that shows itself in being separated from God. He goes on and he talks about, with reference to the devil, he says, furthermore, our fallen nature is described as being aligned with the kingdom of darkness. He says in verse two, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, what he's saying here is, is that when people live in their sins, it's not simply a mental miscalculation. Like when we were in school, and we had to do a math question, and we might miss one of the steps. We might forget to carry one of the numbers. And as a result, we get the wrong answer at the end. We're slightly off course because we miss something mentally in all the steps of doing that problem. Paul's saying that's not what's going on here. When we think about being dead in our sins, it's not simply a problem of the mind, but it is an attitude of the heart. That's why he aligns it with the kingdom of darkness, with the prince of the power of the air. Because the devil's rebellion against God is not one simply of not understanding. It is one of defiance to his authority. It is an attitude that rejects God's authority. And so when the Bible says that we are born dead in our sins, that we live in this world dead in our sins, it's 
It's really unpacking for us that we live without reference to God, following the course of this world, living for the here and the now. It means that we live antagonistic to any ultimate authority over us. I will be my own Lord. I will be my own master. Again, that is the the heart of rebellion. And it is also described here with reference to the flesh. In verse 3, he says, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body. The testimony of scripture then is is that we are uh, dead in our sins by nature. And that has not only rendered us vulnerable, but it has separated us from God. And we see that our nature is bent with reference to how we live in this world, to how we live with reference to God's authority, with ultimately what we pursue in life. What is it that we want most? If we're not acknowledging God, our own desires become kings and queens. Ultimately, we live for nothing greater than to be happy. Whatever gives me most pleasure is what I will live for. And Paul is highlighting that as well. This is how we all once lived, carrying out the desires of the flesh. When the church, when Christianity uh, speaks about total depravity, if we've heard of that language before, total depravity is not the same as absolute depravity. The Bible does not teach us that we are as wicked as we possibly could be. It's not saying that we are pure evil. What it is saying, what we believe by that language of total depravity, is is that sin has touched on every aspect of the human person. Like a drop of ink that is dropped into a glass of water, that ink will permeate, it will spread, it will touch every aspect of the liquid so that it is all tainted in the end. Sin has affected our whole being It has affected our mind so that our mind is tainted now, that we act as sovereigns of our own decision-making. It has affected our will, what it is that we desire and pursue in life. It has affected our, our reception of our affections, how we understand and process the role of our affections, our feelings. All of these things are tainted. They're not pure guides for us in how we live our lives. Again, the scriptures make this plain. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. They're foolish. They are not able to understand them. Paul says elsewhere, For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those in the flesh cannot please God. You hear the language. It's the language of ability. It's the language of desire. It's the language of will. What the scriptures are saying is is that by nature, there is something fundamentally wrong with us. We see it. Sin is something that we can't hide from. We still talk about guilt in our world today, even though people don't want to talk about God. The reason why is, is because we can't escape from the realization that things aren't what they should be. We're twisted as we were looking at before. 
And here, Paul is expanding on that, saying that we are separated from God. It's an estrangement from God. It's a rebellion against God that highlights why we need God's grace. But then he goes on to describe uh, that grace that God brings in verses 4 and following. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Those words, but God, can be the two sweetest words in Scripture. That God intervenes where it seems to be hopeless. That God does not leave us in our hopeless estate, but that he comes to save those who are lifeless, separated from God, and not even inclined to being reconciled. It's God, in other words, who initiates this whole rescue operation. It is God who delivers his people. These Ephesians uh, that Paul is writing to, he's not writing to them because they put their life back together. He's not writing to them celebrating that they're wise, uh, that they were able to follow everything that he wrote to them. He's celebrating that God has worked in their lives and caused them to be enabled to believe, to believe that Jesus is Lord and that God has brought salvation through him. And so uh, he's highlighting here uh, the fact that it is based on the love of God. And it's realized in Jesus Christ. God's grace is shown in Christ, uh, who bore the wrath of God on the cross in the place of sinners. But here, in verses 4 and 5, notice what Paul does, really verses 4 and following. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, he has made us alive together with Christ. Earlier I said that the letter of Paul is interwoven, that he is, he's intentionally connecting themes. And earlier in his prayer, he prayed that these Ephesians would come to understand the immeasurable greatness of God's power, that they would have a spirit of wisdom, that they would know the hope to which they have been called to. He wants them to know the power and wisdom of God. And as he is describing it there in Ephesians 1, he's explaining to us what God has done in Jesus Christ. That God's salvation has come in Christ. He has raised his son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he has ascended on high and he is now Lord over all things. This is the power of God to raise his son from the dead. The wisdom of God in being able to make the stone that was rejected the cornerstone of his building project. But now in Ephesians 2, Paul is able to use that language and to say, do you see the wisdom and the power of God in the salvation of sinners? In your life, if you've come to faith. Because he uses that same triad uh, of uh, what God has done. And you see it, all three phrases begin with the word with, uh, that he has made us alive with Christ. He has raised us up with Christ. He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Paul's point is, is that the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power of God that is at work in the life of a believer. That when someone comes to believe in Jesus, it is not simply a mental change of the mind. I guess I'm going to try this way out. 
I think I'll believe in this philosophy now. What Paul is saying is that when someone becomes a Christian, it is fundamentally the power of God being on display. Because someone who was at one time spiritually dead has been made alive. Someone who was separated from God has been restored to God. And that involves a lot more than simply someone's attitude. It is fundamentally a change of the nature that brings about that change. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is why we need the Holy Spirit to be at work in us, changing us in our will, in our mind, and in our affections. He has shown us Christ in such a way that we are then desiring to embrace him by faith. That is the work of God's love, and that is the work of God's mercy. So when it says that we have been made alive, it is speaking about a spiritual resurrection in the believer. You think about a cell phone. A cell phone, if it's cut off from a power source, it has no life in itself, that it is simply dead. But once it is plugged in, once it is connected to a life source, it has life. And Paul is highlighting that without God, we are lifeless. We are those separated from God and mastered by sin and doomed for judgment. But by the work of the Spirit, the Spirit's work is to really connect a sinner with Christ. And by that process, they are changed. And they are made alive. And they have a living hope through their risen Lord and Savior. That is the work uh, of the Spirit. Again, you could think about it like a light bulb. A light bulb by itself doesn't have power. But once it is connected to a power source, it is able to have the ability to shine forth light. And so it is in the life of a believer. So the message of the scriptures is that dead people can be made alive, that it is the power of God that brings that to pass. And if we're sitting here as someone who hasn't come to faith, then we should recognize about what exactly Christianity is purporting to be. It is declaring something not only about ourselves, but something about the God who lives. It's not simply to humble us, to make us realize we're sinners, but to help us understand the, the power and the wonder of God who gives us life and hope and joy. And if you're sitting here as someone outside of the faith, then you should ask the Lord to show himself so that you would know that he would make himself known, that you might be able uh, to trust in him. So there is the need for God's grace because we're dead in our sins, following the course of this world, uh, following the prince of the power of the air, giving ourselves over uh, to the passions of the flesh. But notice that Paul also said there, like the rest of mankind, here's the great unifier of scripture, the outcome of God's grace. What is the outcome of God's grace? It's humility. Paul said that all of us were dead in our sins. Like the rest of mankind, we were living for the passions of our flesh. Christianity believes in the great unifier, that we are all in the same boat together. We are all sinners in need of God's grace. There is no 
categorization of some being better than others. There is no hierarchy of some being more evolved than others. There is no element of allowing pride to seep its way in. Rather, Christianity believes that we are all in need of God's grace. And one of the marks of a genuine faith is humility. Alexander Hodge would make that point. He would argue uh, that, that I think the first essential mark of the difference between true assurance and false assurance is to be found in the true works, humility. If we come to understand God's grace, it will humble us. Because I wasn't just sick, I was dead. It wasn't just that I was vulnerable to temptation of going the wrong way. It's that I wasn't even inclined towards God. God had to work in my life, changing my nature so that I would be inclined to believe. Not only does he give me a savior in Jesus, but he provides a spirit to seal that bond that I might believe in him as well. The work of salvation is a work of God so that no one can boast. You can see how Paul is leading us to our understanding of grace. Grace should be something amazing because we acknowledge that we're wretches. But God has worked. God has given us Christ and he has given us his spirit. There is no place then for boasting. But it also leads forth uh, to gratitude. In verse 10, Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Believers are to understand themselves as God's workmanship. He has worked over them. He has created them. He has built them to be testimonies of his grace. And a Christian understands that. And they delight to function in that way. I want to be a living testimony of God's grace. And so a Christian's life is characterized by gratitude. It is shaped by thanksgiving. It is shaped by an understanding of who they are and what God has done for them. And it brings forth these responses of humility and gratitude. It's a win-win when you think about Christianity. It brings forth something attractive because it is attractive. And it's by the work of the Spirit that we see that God in Christ is attractive rather than wanting to live our lives without reference to God or rebelling against his authority. There must be a change. And we should praise God when he does bring that change. And we should ask God to bring that change that we might delight in him. Where are you at this morning? Do you desire to do what is pleasing in God's sight? Are you someone that is created and understanding yourself as the workmanship of God in Christ Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray as we think about uh, this passage in your word that we would understand the nature of saving grace. We thank you that you are a God who has provided so much for us 
And we pray that as individuals living in our own time, that the prayer of Paul would be fulfilled in our lives, that we would know the spirit of uh, wisdom, that we would know the immeasurable greatness of your power towards uh, those who believe, not only in raising the Lord Jesus from the dead, but in causing those who were dead in their sins to be made alive in Christ Jesus. Go before us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this time I'd like to ask uh, Don and John, uh, the elders, if you can, to come forward and we'll have uh, our profession of faith uh, as well this morning. as we uh, minister one to another, 
May we be encouraged by your continuing work. In Jesus' name we pray.